0: Mets Musings is an unofficial independent podcast covering New York's National League Baseball team. It is not affiliated in any way with Major League Baseball or the New York Mets. Now it's time for some New York Mets baseball talk. Here's Gary Mack bringing you the latest news and analysis from Mets Nation and the world of baseball on another edition of Mets Musings. Welcome to another edition of Mets Musings. And joining joining me this week on the show is former Mets pitcher, Ed Lynch, and Ed was with the Mets from 1980 to 1986. And Ed, welcome to uh, Mets Musings.
1: Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, Ed, you've had quite a career in uh, the world of baseball. You've done a few different things in it. And uh, uh, Steli, how did you get started in the game?
1: Well, you know, like everybody else, I played little league. I had an older brother that was about uh, just about two years older than me, a little less, and uh, you know, he was my he was my mentor. He was the one that pushed me every day. I mean, he demanded I go out in the backyard play catch with him, and and we played on the same little league teams growing up. I was too young to be on most of the teams, but you know, they used to let me play because they wanted my brother was the best player on every little league team I was ever on. So they wanted Christopher, they had to take Edward. So that's what my dad's (laughs) line was. So, uh, but I just like everybody else, but you know, we did a lot of, you know, we played little league and everything, but we played, I mean, it sounds corny, but we, you know, we used to play, I don't, we never called it Sandlot baseball, but we would play, we'd go out to a field and hit fungos and, and throw and pitch to each other and all that stuff, you know? And, uh, and plus, growing up in the New York area, grew up in Westchester County and then up in Poughkeepsie. My dad was with IBM, so you know we could watch every single Yankee game and every Met game on free television. You know, yep. on uh, on uh, was it PIX and WOR? Yep. So, yep. Uh, you know, so we watched every game, and we go to, we go to Yankee Stadium or Shea Stadium at least five ten times a year. So that's I got started like millions of other kids in the New York area. And
0: you got drafted by the Texas Rangers in uh, 1977. So, uh, what would we just had the draft? Uh, do you you know how, how does that feel when you get your name called and and uh, you know you're going to go to the major, you're going to sign with a major league baseball club?
1: Well, you know it was a different world back then. Um, you know, I hurt my arm pretty severely my senior year in college, and uh, you know the draft wasn't obviously it wasn't televised. There was no ESPN or, and there was no internet. So I remember I was at the, the dorm, the athletic dorm. It was during the regional tournament in 1977. And a buddy of mine came up and said, Hey, you just got drafted by the Texas Rangers. I said, no kidding. (laughs) I had no no idea, you know? (laughs) And then we, you know, we went to Omaha, we lost the championship game. And then I got on a plane and flew down to Sarasota, Florida to join their rookie club. And, um, it all happened so quickly, but it was a thrill, obviously, to get a chance to play professional baseball. And, you know, it, it was a different world back then, um, but still it was professional ball. So I was very excited. My family was excited, obviously, also.
0: And as you say, it is It is uh, now, it's a big show and uh, everybody's got cameras, the top picks and stuff. It's really quite amazing how
1: far that it's come in, in you know, a short relatively short period of time. No, there's no doubt. Yeah. I mean, I I'm good friends with Rick Monday, who was the first pick in the first ever draft in 1965. So there are people who are alive and walking around who played major league baseball that were not drafted. And, uh, you know, because there was no draft. So we've come a long way. But, you know, obviously with this current crisis, the draft has taken a major step backwards. I have no what idea what the ramifications of this year's draft are going to be with only five rounds. And, and uh, anybody after that can only sign for $20,000. So, you know, if you were in last year's draft and you were a really, really, I mean, really good high school player and say you went in the seventh round and you signed for a million dollars, you know, this year – there was no seventh round and mm-hmm. if you weren't dra- drafted in the first five rounds so that kid that signed for a million dollars last year has to make the choice do i sign for twenty thousand dollars or do i go to college so the draft has taken a major step backwards because of this crisis as has every other industry and every part of every industry so it'll be interesting to see how this shakes out
0: yeah the whole game is gonna uh, it, it's 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 a mess right now but uh so uh let's continue on with you a little bit. You got traded to the Mets in nineteen seventy-nine. Now you're a kid and uh you find out you get traded. Uh how did that affect you? I mean, uh or or were you happy because you were essentially in a way you were coming home?
1: Well, I, I, I just finished my triple my first triple A season in 1979 uh seventy nine, excuse me, with the Tucson Toros. Uh, Texas Rangers, AAA affiliate, the Pacific Coast League. And I was living in in Miami with my parents and the phone rang and it was a a gentleman named by the name of Joe Klein, who was the minor league director who was my first manager at rookie ball. And, uh, and he said, Ed, we've made a trade with the Mets. And I'm sitting there thinking, Oh, great. Well, why is he telling me this? And then I, (laughs) you know, I was a stupid 23 year old and I went, Oh boy. Oh my God, I just got traded. And I told my parents, my mom was screaming and yelling because they grew up as Brooklyn Dodger fans. My whole family's from Bay Ridge where I was, I was, where I was born. Right. And, and the good thing about it, and I don't want to, you know, you know, be insulting anybody, but the Mets at that time stunk, you know, I mean, so I knew I was going to get a, a better opportunity there than I would. Texas was a pretty good club back then. And yes and i had a lot of you know veteran pitchers but the mets i thought i would get an opportunity and then then i was told i was going to get invited to to major league camp so i was besides myself thrilled and uh you know to play for a guy like joe tory i mean you got to be kidding me as a new york kid and you know it was it was mind boggling really
0: well i don't think you're insulting anybody by saying that cuz uh, you know, uh, us, us longtime Mets fans know how bad they were, and they went through ups and downs. So it, it it's okay, you know. Uh, look, even Tom Seaver called them the Stems when he when uh, <laughs> when Keith Hernandez came over, he told them that. So if Tom can say it, I guess we're entitled to say anything. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you came, but uh, as you said, they were pretty bad, but. There was some signs there when you first got there, wasn't I mean, you had Mookie Wilson, uh, I, I think, was came up in 80. Uh, uh, Backman might have been up already. So you did have some signs,
1: didn't you? Oh, sure. You know, immediately after the trade in September 79, I was going to go to the Instructional League in, in St. Petersburg with the Texas Rangers, and I just switched over and went there to Instructional League in 79 with the Mets. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Instructional League is the postseason league where – you kind of finish your development. It's changed now. It's more for younger players, but back then it was for guys trying to get breakthrough from that AAA level to the big league level. So I went to uh, instructional league in 1979 in uh, September through November, and when I got there, I saw guys like uh, Wally Backman, saw guys like you know Mike Scott, uh, Jesse Orozco, um, you know some really good good player, Mookie Wilson, uh, Hubie Brooks. Uh, so, I mean, I, I could see the basis for some pretty good players. And then the next year I went to Tidewater with that group and I saw just how good those guys were. And then, of course, over the next two or three years, it, it was it was amazing that the, the level of talent, the, the 1980 draft, the 1981 draft. Uh, those players started coming to fruition in 83. And then in 84, we all of a sudden became a contender.
0: Yeah, they, they brought up they bring up Strawberry. Uh, they trade for Hernandez, uh, and, and eventually trading for Gary Carter, and uh, I, I guess we know the rest. And and uh, eighty six comes around. You had a pretty good year in eighty five. Eighty six comes around. And you get injured in, uh, what, the third game of the season, was it?
1: Well, I actually hurt my knee in spring training. I was pitching as the Twins in St. Pete, and uh, Chris Patero, I think his name was, did a push button down the first base side, and I my spike caught, and I turned to go get the ball, and I felt something pop in my knee, and, of course, it blew up. And I didn't want to go on the DL, so kind of pitched through it. And then the opening day, I had one, I had one outing in Philadelphia – for an inning and two thirds. And then I went on the DL and uh, got, had surgery and then went on a rehab assignment, went on a rehab assignment to Tidewater. And then I knew, I knew when I was in Tidewater, I'm looking at this club in New York, the 86 Mets, and they're winning every game. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at the pitching staff and the last pitcher on the staff, like the mop up guy is Rick Aguilera. So I, you know, I wasn't dumb enough to think that they were just going to move Rick Aguilera out (laughs) and bring me back with the money I was making after I won an arbitration case the the previous winter. Right. Uh, I mean, I knew that I knew I wasn't coming back and I just was wondering where I was going to go. And then two days or a day before my my rehab assignment was up, I got a call from Al Harrison saying I've been traded to the Cubs. So uh, obviously I was, you know, upset. But, you know, for me to admit that I didn't think something like that would could happen would be admitting that I'm naive. I mean, it's a business. You gotta, you know, it's a business on both ends, you know. So I understood it. And uh, in the long run, it worked out for the best.
0: Well, I have to tell you a little, little side story here um, that uh, I had a season tickets back in those days. And... Uh, we, I, I was talking to somebody that I got friendly with at work, and and it turns out that they had the same ticket plan. We had a Saturday ticket plan in '85, uh, and uh, but we didn't know each other at then. And he said to me in passing, he says, "Yeah, I had that the Ed Lynch plan," <laughs> and <laughs> that's I, right. I, I looked at him and I said, the Ed Lynch plan, I said, son of a gun, you're right. It seemed that you pitched a lot of games on Saturday home games in, I think it was 85. I think that was yes, the I was talking about
1: it talking about. I the, think, yeah, I think my first three or four or five starts were on, <laughs> on Saturday. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. Because, you know, we had off days early in the season and Dwight was always going to pitch on his fifth day.
0: Right.
1: So uh, Dwight pitched a lot of Friday nights which would have been my fifth day, but Dwight went instead, which I can understand why, and then I would pitch the next day. So it's funny, that year I probably pitched after Dwight probably about 10, 12, 15 times, and so I used to chart all his games, but Uh it was funny, I I, I could sense the disappointment every time NBC did a game of the week. (laughs) They would show the highlights of the previous night of Dwight throwing a two-hitter and punching out 14, and here I come throwing – Sinker, or slider, or up and you know it was—you know—it wasn't certainly the same entertainment value, but um I got on a lot of games of the week. I'll tell you that.
0: <laughs> well, I, you know, you you are immortalized in uh, a few guys' eyes that remember watching you pitch a lot in '85.
1: I never knew I had a, a, <laughs> a uh, season ticket plan named after me. That's, that's pretty. <laughs>
0: And uh, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, – in 84, you pitched the second game with a doubleheader. Keith Moreland hit a home run in the first game. And you plunked him with a pitch uh, in the second game and it started a big brawl. was – obviously in those days, that was a purpose pitch.
1: Well, I think the statute of limitations has run on that incident. (laughs) So, any admission I make can't be prosecuted by the commissioner. So, yeah, I mean, we – I, we could not beat the Cubs that year. I mean, uh, we—I think we were one and eight at Wrigley Field, something like that. And I think it was the last game we played there for the year. So they had beat us. They were—and not only they beat us, they pounded us. You know, they were a veteran club, very good club. They had gotten Rick Sutcliffe during spring training. They got Bobby Jeneer, Gary Matthews to to really put them over the top. But it was a, it was one of those. It was a doubleheader. We we're making up a rainout. Ron Darling pitched the first game. And Ron was a young guy then. You know, he was probably 24 years old, 23. And uh, he was pitching the first game. And there's nothing worse than pitching at Wrigley Field. And the wind is blowing like crazy straight out. And you're sitting in the clubhouse. And here come the players from the field and batting practice. Boy, the ball's flying today. You know, and you're just sitting there going, oh, my God. So I'm pitching the second game. So I sit up in the clubhouse and I'm watching the game on TV in the clubhouse. And then I just turned it off. And then I'm sitting by my locker and I could hear the crowd roaring and the place is shaking. And the door opens and here comes Ron Darling. And I think it turned out to be the worst outing of his career. I think he went two and a third and gave up eight earned runs, something like that. I mean, Ronnie was dominant from the day he got to the league. Mm -hmm. But he just got pounded like the rest of us did in that ballpark when the wind was blowing out. So I went out for the second game, got him out on the first, second, third. And then I think in the fourth inning, there was a a ground ball, a, an error, and then a three-run homer, and then a, then a double. And I just said to myself, that's enough. That's enough. Somebody's got to do something. So here comes uh, Keith Moreland up to the plate. And I found out later, he was in the on-deck circle standing there with Jody Davis. And he turned to Jody and said, before he went up to the plate, he hit the donut off his bat and said, he's going to hit me, and I'm going to go get him. Because they knew me. I mean, I wasn't going to try to hurt anybody, but I'm not going to go out there and get abused without doing something. Right, right. So, you know, Mike Fitzgerald said, you know, he, he was behind the plate, and he's looking at Moreland's feet like catch, uh, catchers do to make sure, you know, he's in the box and look up, make sure he's not peeking, and then he's going to put down a sign. He said when he put down the sign, he looked up. I was already halfway through my windup, and he went, oh, you know? And, uh, so I threw the ball behind him, hit him in the rear end. And, uh, you know, he charged the mound and I was going to, I was going to win a split decision on points. I was going to be like Muhammad Ali. And, you know, he's a former university of Texas linebacker and he came in low and hit me. And we all went down and, you know, about 10 tons of flesh piled on top of me, Tim Stoddard and Frank Howard were on, on top of the pile, I think. And, you know, when it was over, to show you the difference in the game then versus now, when the whole thing was over with, I'm on the mound facing the next hitter and Keith Moreland's at first base. Neither one of us got thrown out of the game. So it shows you whether that's right or whether that's wrong. I don't know, but we seem to handle our own problems right a lot better back then. You know, if, if there was some sort of, you know, incident, then the other team would react and that would be the end of it. Mm. And so I think, we had a cleaner way of dealing with things like that back then than, than, than exists now. I'm not saying what they're doing now is wrong. I think you have to be careful that people don't intentionally try to hurt people, but it just shows the difference 36, 36 years ago versus today.
0: It certainly does. And it, and it is certainly a, a, a different game nowadays. And, and so, you, you know, uh, you get traded to the Cubs, and uh, you spent the eighty-seven season, and then you retired.
1: Um, then you went back to school. You went to law school. Yeah, I did. No, I got my degree before I signed, which was uh, pretty rare in those days. And uh, um, I, mean, I spent eleven years playing, and then went back to school. So I'm, I'm sitting in class as a a thirty-two year old a first year law student getting verbally abused by a professor and I'm sitting, geez, a year ago I was on game of the week. Now I'm getting abused by you in a classroom in Miami. So, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was a different, it was different. I'm glad I did it. I was at a point in my life. I wanted to move on. I didn't want to go to AAA for a couple of years. I had a young daughter. I had made good enough money where I could take, a couple of years get my law degree and then pursue a, a career in the law and that's that's uh that was my 100 percent intention now I kept in contact with baseball people with Joe McIlvain with Frank Cashin and and uh you know I got interviews in New York with uh some of the people in the league offices while I was at law school I actually had an interview with Bart Giamatti about 10 days before he died yeah. and uh just to keep my name out there but I, I couldn't Rely on baseball to come through with any kind of meaningful employment. So I was fully, I was fully dedicated to, to uh, practicing law. So uh, that's that's what happened when I retired.
0: And but you did get back in the game. You got in with the uh, uh, Padres, I think, first, and then you ended up back with the Cubs. And where you eventually became general manager, and that that's quite. Uh, a difference from uh, being on the field uh, to the general manager's office. How did you enjoy that? You were there, I think, six years, you were general manager and how did you enjoy that? And, and, um, you know, was it a difficult job? I mean, of course it's a difficult job. That's kind of a dumb question,
1: (laughs) but um, uh, it's, it's, it's a very, it's, it's very demanding and I'll go, I'll take a step back and explain what happened when I, about a month and a half before I graduated from law, graduated from law school, Joe McIlvain became the general manager of the San Diego Padres. And so he offered me the job of director of player development for the San Diego Padres. And I just couldn't turn that down. So I went with Joe for three years there. He got uh, fired as a GM of the Padres and he went back to the Mets as a GM. Mm-hmm. And after my third year as farm director in San Diego, I went with Joe as the assistant in New York for one year. Then Andy McPhail called and I became the GM in Chicago during the strike and, uh, and I got named October of 94 so my first spring training was with replacement players and uh, which was an interesting dynamic and then uh, you know and then we settled that and uh, that job is it's all consuming I mean and we didn't have the size of front offices uh, then that they have now I mean I Look at Theo Epstein and I look at uh, uh, the, you know, the front office in New York, the number of right. you know, assistants and interns, and you know, it was just me, really. I didn't even have an assistant, it was me. I had a farm director, I had a scouting director, and I had secretaries, and that was it. It was basically the three of us plus support staff, so it was a 24 7, 360, 365 job. I mean, I was going to say. Three fifty-eight because you usually take Christmas week off, but I I remember signing a free agent on Christmas Eve. So (laughs) it uh, it's an all-consuming job, and and you're in the public eye, and and everybody's very judgmental. I'm glad I did it. I I I I don't no. I don't think I could handle that in my age again. (laughs) Uh, It's a very the media was a very challenging part of it you know, the perception that the Cubs had all this money. We really didn't. We we're the third largest market. And I think we were about 12th in revenues because we're playing at Wrigley field with no signage, no parking. Our, our, uh, our broadcast rights were, you know, held by our own company. So we weren't really maximizing our revenues there. So we didn't, you know, we had the, third largest market and like 12th in revenues, which makes it very difficult because the public perception is, geez, Chicago, you have all this money. Why aren't you signing all these free agents? And my job was to go up there and articulate why we weren't signing or why I didn't sign Randy Johnson to a free agent contract without pointing the finger at ownership. And that's an impossible task. You can't lie. You can't tell the truth. So it's a very difficult job. And I, you know, I, I empathize with, with the guys that have those those jobs now. And it, you know, it might be a little more difficult now with all the bloggers and the, and the internet. So very difficult job.
0: Yeah. It, 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 you, you can't win at that job. Uh, uh, not at all. I mean, uh, if you don't sign the free agents, they're on your back. If you do and they're a bust, they're on your back. So
1: it, you can't win. It, it's well, just- the, only, the only thing you can do is win the world series. And then if you don't want it the next year, then they start it on you again. So, uh, yeah, it's a very difficult job. You just, you know, you just, you work hard, you do the best you can. Uh, Andy McPhail gave me some great advice. You know, you make a lot of tough decisions, but you find solace in your own mind. You research every issue to the point where, where when you get up at a press conference, there isn't one question that you can be asked that you have not researched extensively. So that gives you a certain calm. It gives you a certain confidence. And, and you know, if you can articulate a position, Why? it might mitigate some of the criticism, you know? So there are ways, you know, to make it a little easier on yourself, but it's extremely demanding.
0: Did you, uh, did you start to use analytics there at all? Or, uh, you
1: know, what was your particular style? Did you, Oh, no, we, uh, you know, we didn't call it analytics, but we analyzed the numbers. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, analytics to me was a way to evaluate players. It wasn't a style of play Mm -hmm. and you know, the, the numbers we use, like if I'm asking you to describe a player to me, I mean, I'm asking for, okay, he's a, he's an average runner. He's got a plus arm. He's got plus power. He's a below average hitter. Uh, he 's an average fielder. I mean, I have a picture in my mind of what that player is. We used analytics extensively. we just didn't call it that, and we didn 't package a bunch of stats together and then put a label on it like when i just the player I just described i I got a picture in my mind what that player looks like and what his weaknesses are and his strengths. But if you tell me war a player's war it 's like a beautiful woman. I mean, if you tell me a woman is a ten is she tall, athletic, smart, um, ath- you know, uh, great personality. So if you just tell me a woman is a 10, I don't know if you're talking about Sophie Loren or Gino Lola Brigida. So, I mean, the more you describe a player in terms of the individual categories that they, they are judged on, the better picture I'm going to have and the easier it is for me to evaluate a player. But if you just lump everything together and put it on their war or, uh, you know, ERA, independent of of fielding, things of that nature. You know, we all did that. We just called it different things. And it wasn't an end-all, be-all. We had to mix in what kind of person this is. You know, is it the guy that quits? I mean, where would Keith Hernandez grade out? I know where Daryl Strawberry would grade out on on, uh, analytics. Where would Keith Hernandez grade out? Where would guys like Ron Darling or Wally Backman or, you know, some of the guys that, you know, Uh, are are very important cogs in any championship machines. They may not be the the lead singer or the leading man, but there's very valuable players who have weaknesses in different areas, but they have such strength in other areas that you cannot measure by numbers. And that's a, to me, that's an issue because, you go go through a 162 game season especially now with interleague play i mean you back in the day we used to go on a road trip we would go to chicago houston cincinnati come home then we go to san francisco la san diego come home now they might go to you know go to la seattle miami boston and arizona you know i mean the travel is much more demanding there's much more demand on players in terms of physical conditioning especially in the minor leagues so more now than ever you have to have guys that are tough guys that are not going to give up you know and I and I was watching that thing the last dance with Michael Jordan I mean all the things that serve you well on the street humility self-examination they don't exactly serve you so well between the white lines so you're looking for those guys that are just intense competitors refuse to lose, winning type players and some of their physical skills might be inferior to somebody else, but that makeup puts them over the top.
0: And I, I, I I couldn't agree more. I think they use too much of the, they concentrate too much on these analytics. And that's why one of my favorite baseball movies, uh, I don't know if you saw it, but it's the Clint Eastwood movie, the trouble with the curve. Yeah. And, And to me that, that points out everything, why you need a good, strong scouting system as well as having numbers, because there are just some things that a scout can pick up that a number's not going to pick up. And as you said, one of that is hard, uh, you know, toughness. And uh, I, I think it, it, to me it's a shame in a way because it seems to be almost like a dying breed.
1: Yeah, sure is. Hey, Gary, I have another Zoom call. I apologize it's at 930, so – um okay i really really enjoyed being on with you today i'd love to come back when we have more time but i've got a nine i have i'm on zoom just about all day long (laughs) okay (laughs) well i want to
0: thank you for coming on ed and and yeah let's please do this again in the future and we can talk more about the future of the game and whatnot and thanks so much for coming on oh anytime
1: anytime just give me a call okay thanks ed bye-bye now bye-bye
0: Hi, I'm Ron Swoboda
1: of the 69 New York Mets, and you're listening to Mets Musings with Gary Mack.
0: Looking for great Cardinals talk? Then check out Conversations with C-70. My name is Daniel Shofta, and I talk with some of the great bloggers on the Internet today about their teams. It always goes back to the Cardinals. Find the latest episode on my website, www.cardinals70.com, or at baseballpodcast.net.
1: Baseball and BBQ, your place for interesting baseball talk, opinions, and history. Baseball
0: and BBQ, your place for barbecue recipes, tips, and interviews from the world of barbecue. If you like baseball, and if you like barbecue, then tune in to Baseball and BBQ. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and BaseballTalkRadio.com, along with Mets Musings and other great baseball podcasts.
1: With all the Mets news, it is the news from around the world and around the corner. Here's Gary Mack. New York
0: Mets select Pete Crow Armstrong. Yeah! Best offensive center fielder in this draft class. And with that, Peter Crow Armstrong is a member of the New York Mets organization as, he signs, uh, as he's drafted number one by the New York Mets in his shortened draft of 2020. Peter Crow Armstrong, a high school outfielder. Uh, the Mets drafted. Then uh, JT Jinn, a right-handed pitcher. Isaiah Green, a center fielder. Anthony Walter, a shortstop. Matthew Dyer, catcher/slash utility guy. Eric Orr is a right-handed pitcher. Now, uh, there were five rounds. The Mets got to make six picks. And uh, of those six picks. Uh, I believe four were college guys, two were high school guys. They are allowed to sign undrafted free agents. And the Mets so far that I know of have signed three. Brandon McIlwain, an outfielder. Drake Nightingale, a pitcher. And Joe Swazi, an outfielder. And we'll have more on this uh, as we go along. But that's the... um, That's the Mets' results in the draft for 2020 so far. Uh, I want to address this situation with Major League Baseball. Rob Manfred said last week that they were going, it was 100% we were going to have a season. He comes out the other day and says now he doesn't think there's going to be a season. It's just not sending good messages back and forth to the players. It's not sending a good message to the fans. Uh, I I don't know what the problem is at this stage. I'm so confused between 48 and 50 games, and then the players said, just tell us to show up. And the owners, uh, some of them don't want to apparently there's eight that don't want to play at all this season, and they need, uh, I think, 24 of the 30 owners to uh, approve if they were to play. Why eight owners, and I don't know who they are, don't want to play is beyond me. But this is the situation we're in right now. And Manfred has screwed this up from the beginning, he's pretty much screwed up everything in the game, and this is just another nail in the coffin of this game. And don't forget, we've got another CBA coming up. He's going to screw that royalty, and I, I you know, I, I almost think that the players' union can and can sense it. They're like a shark and Manfred's like chum, a bleeding chum in the water, and they sense it, and they're going to go for everything, and the owners are not going to give in. The owners aren't going to give in either. So we're able to have a big strike next season or the end of next season whenever it's over. So don't be surprised about that if that happens as well. Uh, I, I don't know what Manfred's doing. Uh, I, I don't know what the owners are doing. And the players now, they say, well, we're ready to play. Well, Well, hold on a second, players. You're not without blame either in this. You're just as much to blame because your greed was showing. First, you didn't want to play. Because of the virus. But then some players said, well, if I get my full salary, I'll play. So there's some greed on your part as well. Don't be so innocent now trying to be the martyrs and say, well, we wanted to play. No, 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 no. If you really wanted to play, you would have taken an earlier proposal or made a more reasonable counter-proposal. But like two children that want the same toy, nobody was willing to compromise anything. And I must say, I believe the owners compromised some of the things with salary that the players could have taken. But no. So players... You're not totally absolved of this debacle, nor are the owners. You share blame evenly, equally. And you know who gets screwed? Once again, the fan gets screwed. We get screwed because of your greed. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to kill the golden goose that gave you the golden egg. Because people are learning to do different things. They've changed their lives around. And now we have some live sports on. Golf. NASCAR. Two of my favorites, well, golf, uh, I I live. But the point being, people are adapting. They're doing other things. And you guys are still there arguing. And you look stupid. That's the whole thing. You You look stupid other sports can come back and not have any of these issues you've got to have a drawn out issue all the time with the freaking union and you're killing the sport but you know what I'm not surprised because unions have killed a lot of industry in this country And this is no different. They're going to kill this industry. And the greed of the owners is going to help them. But maybe that's the plan. Maybe that's why they're getting rid of uh, Manfred. Maybe the whole plan is to take the game down. And they could say... (laughs) I, I... can't afford to pay these salaries anymore. You want to play pro ball? This is this is we got to have a cap or something. We're not making any money like we used to. People aren't coming anymore. We got to cut ticket prices to get people back. I don't know. All I know is that they're screwing the game and they're screwing the fans one more time. And one time they're going to screw us one too often. And that's going to be it. People are going to go somewhere else and do something else. And they'll be there with their fancy stadiums, their exploding scoreboards, and nobody will be there to watch their high priced players. They won't have to worry about COVID-19 then because there won't be anybody there. Every stadium will look like Miami. And that's going to wrap it up for this week's show. I apologize for the rant, but I hope you'll uh, excuse me. Uh, I had to get that off my chest. I hope you enjoyed my special guest ed lynch i'm gonna definitely try to get him back on again and uh continue our discussion and i want to thank you all for listening and, and i hope that you will uh hit the subscribe button on uh youtube or apple podcast google play uh spotify wherever you listen to or watch the podcast Uh, If you hit the subscribe button, it helps me grow the show and expand to new listeners. And until next time, remember, I don't know, know. Keep the faith. Let's hope this baseball. Stay optimistic. And always, always, let's go Mets. And I'll see you next time on another edition of Mets Musics.